Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Today, we are pleased to welcome my friend Paul Steckler, who's the Wolfer Denius Chair in Entertainment Studies, Professor of Public Affairs in Radio, Television, and Film at the University of Texas at Austin. Paul is an acclaimed documentary filmmaker and founder of the Center for Politics and Governments, Governance at the LBJ School of Public Affairs. Uh, his films include George Wallace, Setting the Woods on Fire, Last Man Standing, Politics, Texas Style, two segments of The Eyes on the Prize, two series on the history of the civil rights movement, Last Stand at Little Bighorn, Louisiana Boys Raised on Politics and Getting Back to Abnormal, uh, his films have won the Peabody Awards, three DuPont Columbia University Journalism Awards, three Emmy Awards, and a special jury prize at the Sundance Film Festival. Uh, so, Paul, welcome to Race and Democracy. I'm delighted to be here today, especially to talk about Eyes on the Prize. Yeah, you know, this film, Eyes on the Prize, and there's really all together, there's 14 parts mm -hmm. of this film. Um, Henry Hampton, you're, you're one of the filmmakers. This film really changed my life. I saw... The first series when it premiered on PBS and I was in junior high school and I saw the subsequent series as well. Mm -hmm. And the first goes from 1954 to 65. And then you go from 65 all the way up until Harold Washington's 1983 campaign. Yeah. And now in 2020, in this com context and climate of racial reckoning, those films, just the power of those films stand out even more in terms of the way in which those films talked about race, democracy, social movement, citizenship, dignity, uh, and, and much more. So I'd love for you to talk about those, you know, being part of that series and Eyes on the Prize has influenced so many uh, generations of filmmakers who are investigating not just the civil rights movement, but just racial justice. It's really fascinating to look back on this. I, I watched our, our film about Martin Luther King's last year last night again. And um, I reread a piece uh, that we did about the mountaintop speech as an example. And you know something? If Dr. King gave that speech, that exact same speech today, it would be totally relevant. It's all about social and economic inequality and how, how a society like ours can can right itself from the wrongs of the past. It's um, it's just amazing to me how relevant the series is and just um, the power of Eyes on the Prize still, you know, 30 plus years after after it was made, you know, by a uh, incredibly dedicated staff led by um, the legendary Henry Hampton, whose vision it was. And how did you get involved on the Eyes on the Prize series? <laughs> you know, I was uh, I was a young filmmaker in New Orleans uh, and I was teaching at Tulane, teaching Southern politics with a focus on African-American politics in the South. And I was uh, about to do my second film about a mayoral election in New Orleans in the late 80s between two major African-American candidates, which was very unusual at the time. And a friend of mine was working for Henry and eyes hadn't come out the first series. And she said that uh, her boss and I had a lot in common in terms of our interests. So I wrote him a letter just asking him for some help for fundraising. And he sent me back this long, wonderful letter with all this advice, you know, and I thought, wow, this is, this filmmaking is great. You know, I, 
I guess everybody's really helpful. It's also the one and only letter like that I've ever gotten. And uh, I don't know, Henry and I struck up a, you know, a, a relationship writing. And then when I finished that film, I brought it up to, uh, to Boston. And uh, Henry said, uh, you know, since I had a PhD in political science, would I like to be an advisor on a second series? Because he thought that Eyes on the Prize might be successful when it was on TV later on that year. And I thought about it for a second. And I said, you know, I'd rather be one of the filmmakers. And he looked at me and he goes, mm, that's an interesting idea. And then later on, he watched the film Among Brothers with John Else, the, um, uh, the chief cinematographer, the author of True South, the history. The two of them, I think, late at night after a meeting and they were just drinking beer and they really liked the film. And eventually he offered me a job and it really was my film school. And it was truly one of the most amazing experiences of my life and actually of everybody's life who worked on that series. And talk, talk to me about the, the two episodes that you did specifically. Mm -hmm. uh, can you give us the titles um, and talk about getting the footage together, the process of making those those films and also the editing process? Because there's sure. always so much left on the editing floor. You know, I made those films with uh, Jacqueline Shearer, who um, um, unfortunately died uh, back in 93 after doing a really wonderful film about the uh, the 54th uh, colored uh, uh, infantry um, uh, in the Civil War, and was edited by Lillian Benson, uh, who's uh, still editing out in California. And we made two films of the series, uh, the second series. Uh, one of them is called The Promised Land, and it's about King in 67 and 68, um, about his coming out in op opposition to this, the, uh, the war in Vietnam, and his increasing focus on economic inequality, you know, which leads to the Poor People's Campaign, um, and the sidebars, he goes to Memphis to uh, uh, support the, uh, the sanitation worker strike with the famous signs, I am a man, um, and then is assassinated. Uh, and then the, uh, the Poor People's Campaign ends up uh, in Resurrection City in Washington. And, you know, for various reasons, it doesn't work. It's plowed over and the movement, you know, it's, it's a turning point for the movement. You know, the other film... Uh, was a film about the, the segregation fight in Boston. Uh, and Jackie had grown up in South Boston in a housing project. And so it was a very personal story for her, you know, but it was interwoven with the election of Maynard Jackson uh, as mayor of Atlanta and his efforts um, uh, to be able to use of, uh, uh, his power to be able to bring in uh, uh, African-American uh, business folks to be able to help build the Atlanta airport. You know, the process, you know, was basically the ICE team got together, you know, early on in a long production school where Henry would bring in scholars and participants. And by the way, one of the, the things to remember about the series is that on film, Henry's dictate was if you weren't there, you're not in the film. So as much as, you know, I love scholars and I love academics and historians, you know, the people that were in the film were the people that were there, the people that could say, I remember that day on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in Selma or, you know, I was there marching, you know, with the sanitation workers in Memphis, you know, or I was there at Resurrection City. So part of our job was to develop treatments, you know, and stories to fit into the, you know, the, the episodes that had been decided uh, that we decided. And then Henry would assign teams uh, and then we would uh, look for archival footage you know, and we would look for uh, people that were storytellers. And so a lot of time was spent on the phone, 
and this is pre uh, pre Google pre uh, internet. <laughs> you know, so a lot of this was really, you know, really you know foot uh, foot traffic working uh, to be able to figure out this stuff. And I want to I want I want to go to each film one at a time. Sure. Tell me about first the the, the King film, mm-hmm. and um, King has become you know you all did these films in the mid eighties, the mid to late eighties, and mm-hmm. around eighty five to eighty eight, and yeah. King has become so much bigger, right? If you can even believe it in our yeah. imagination, because certainly there was an MLK holiday then, mm-hmm. but there wasn't the yeah. African-American National History Museum, the King Memorial, there wasn't mm-hmm. Barack Obama, right? So right. tell me about making that King film. And I teach that King film and it's so powerful mm-hmm. looking at 67 to 68. And I would say that, you know, the Poor People's Campaign, the way I teach it and the way I see it, I don't see it as a failure. I actually see it as incomplete, unfinished, right. but it seems that he's soaring. I see him as such a, uh, you know, monumental and prophetic figure talking about wealth inequality, trying mm-hmm. to bring um, so many different people of color, including white people together right. to get that universal basic income and really mm-hmm. boldly speaking truth to power. You know, in those years, mm-hmm. King um, takes up the mantle of really Malcolm X in the sense of he's it's the unvarnished truth. It's always nonviolence, mm-hmm. but he's talking about racial slavery. He's talking about white supremacy. He's mm-hmm. talking about we need that check that he had alluded to at the March on Washington. So tell us about you know that film. It's just so powerful. Well, one of the things about documentary filmmaking is that what you're always looking for is you're looking for someone's life to be able to use for a metaphor for something broader, you know. And everybody thinks they know King. You know, King the Holiday, King the, uh, uh, you know, the speech at the March on Washington in 1963. The king they don't know as well is the king of 67 and 68, the king who breaks with the Johnson administration over the war, the king who increasingly, you know, is is unbound in his criticism of economic and social inequality. You know, this is not the king of the holiday. This is the king that makes people uncomfortable, you know, because he's shining a light on things that are, are a lot harder to deal with than being able to get access to buses and to public facilities and even voting. Um, so that for us, you know, our job was to be able to take King's journey, his internal jury, journey, without losing the fact that King is not the whole movement. That's the whole purpose of Eyes on the Prize. Eyes on the Prize is about those foot soldiers, many of them women, you know, in many cases, most of them women in the Montgomery bus boycott, you know, who are the drivers of the movement. But take him and take that internal life that is not as well known and be able to broaden it out as a, you know, as a way to be able to take a look at where the movement was going, you know, and so that his life was interrupted in 1968. And you're right, the struggle continues and it's continued all the way, you know, through. So the poor people's movement in many other ways than morphs and eventually ends up with Black Lives Matter, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years later. So our job was to be able to get inside of that king and make him a flesh and blood person as opposed to an icon, if that makes sense. Yeah. And tell us about April 3rd, 1968, because there's the last speech, but there's so much great stuff in Memphis. He arrives in Memphis on March 18th of that year. And then he comes back uh, mm-hmm. a second time and there's the the violence on around March 28th. 
Right. And then he returns on April 3rd to lead a nonviolent march because he had been criticized. Mm-hmm. People said if he couldn't lead nonviolence in Memphis, what was going to happen in D.C.? So mm-hmm. tell us about that that last speech. And have, have you been able to ever put together the whole recording of that last speech? Does that even exist, the whole yeah. recording? Okay, yes. Yeah, the, the last speech is uh, 40 minutes long, and the recording has always been available. The the problem for a filmmaker was that there was very little footage, you know, and most Americans are familiar with the last minute of that speech. You know, I've been to the mountaintop, you know, I've, you know, getting to the promised land and they don't hear the rest of the speech. And the rest of the speech is pretty amazing. You know, it's almost a, a sort of like a, a journey through his life. It's a journey through his brush with death when somebody stabbed him, you know, or, you know, uh, late in, uh, you know, late in the 1950s and he almost died. You know, and his statement about businesses and their responsibilities, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so part of our job was to find as much footage as we possibly could. You know, now much more has been found since. But back then, you know, for a year and a half, we worked with archival researchers and we found about seven and a half minutes of the speech. And one of the things I've written about is that we had a rough cut screening, you know, where we had to cut the film way down. And we had seven and a half minutes of a speech, which you would never use and people said, cut this, cut this. Nobody even mentioned cutting that speech. Now, we eventually, you know, cut it, cut it down fairly, fairly significantly. But that was part of our search. And, you know, in terms of being able to make the film, you know, for the Memphis uh, sanitation strike, a lot of the footage that we used was actually dumped by local TV stations who had no use for it after the fact. And it was rescued out of garbage cans by a coalition of activists who eventually... Uh, uh, lent it to uh, uh, the University of Memphis libraries. Um, you know, the Poor People's Campaign, you know, somewhere in the process, I was reading Garrow's footnotes in Bearing the Cross, and there was a, a, a reference to a, a King in the March, and I figured it must be a film about 1963, and I called Garrow up, and he goes, oh, no, that's a, that's a, a, a film about the Poor People's Campaign. You know, and so I found one copy of it in a lending library in the University of Indiana, and that's the film where we have all the material of King and you know Andy Young and Jesse Jackson, and Hosea Williams, all debating the Poor People's Campaign. And you may have seen the birthday footage where they're singing "Happy Birthday" to Martin. Yes, I have. His birthday when he was thirty-nine. He was so mm-hmm. young. That all came out of that film, you know. So it's it's a you're an archaeologist. You're looking for everything you can possibly find. You know, and for that film, you know, we went to Memphis, we talked to a sanitation worker, we talked to union folks, we talked to a city councilor, you know, who was on the opposite side in alliance with Mayor Loeb, and you put together a story. And, you know, I'll never forget, Andy Young at that time was the mayor of Atlanta, and we went down to his office to do an interview with him, and he's the mayor, he's the mayor of this major metropolitan city, and they said they'll give us an hour. And we set up our cameras, Jackie, Shearer, and I with, uh, with Bobby Shepard, and his brother Sekou on sound. And we sat down with the, the mayor and we ended up interviewing him, I think, for six hours. He just stopped <laughs> talking to anybody else. And I will never forget him talking about that last day, you know, where he'd come out of court and he was able to get the injunction against another march uh, uh, knocked down. This is the night after, the day after the, the, uh, the last, the mountaintop speech. And he's so happy just remembering how happy King was to see him and they had a pillow fight, you know, and he's just beaming. And all of a sudden, 
you can see his face change because he's in that moment. And now he knows where this story is going. Uh, you know, and then, you know, talking to Ralph Abernathy, uh, you know, about those last moments and holding Dr. King's head in his lap, you know, it's, this is, uh, <laughs> it's one of those astounding things as a filmmaker where you hear people tell these first person accounts of just unforgettable moments in American history. So, And when you do, when you talk about the second film you made, Boston Busing, mm-hmm. which I also teach, that's an extraordinary story mm-hmm. that's so relevant in terms of racial segregation, yeah. Dorchester, Roxbury, yeah. 1974, things came to a head. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about that film because it has uh, one of the heartbreaking moments is where you interview the footage, the footage of the little black girl who's saying it's not fair Right. Uh, how how they're being treated? I just think it's not fair. They're mm-hmm. they're they're calling us apes and monkeys, and they're throwing rocks right. at us. Um, so let's talk about that because Boston and busing mm-hmm. is such an iconic uh, moment in American history. The you know, and these these white parents who created Roar mm-hmm. uh, and these local grassroots anti civil rights groups that were patterned after uh, pro civil rights groups and and racial right. integration. Um, yeah. And they were successful, really, in defeating racial integration in public schools, mm-hmm. both in Boston and the United States at large. So, so let's talk about the the busing film. Sure, the the, the anti busing movement, you know, led by Louise Day Hicks, you know, from yes. uh, from the school board, you know, who eventually almost became uh, mayor of Boston, defeated by Kevin White, uh, who was interviewed in the film. This was a story that was incredibly close to Jackie. You know, Jackie Shearer had uh, grown up in a housing project in the uh, the southern edge of South Boston. And so she had lived through this, you know, and actually Orlando Blackwell, uh, you know, one of the major producers of the first Eyes series who's gone on to a really distinguished career as documentary filmmaker was attacked during this period of time in Boston. Um, you know, so that so this was a story that she was close to. She found these folks to interview, you know, and you know, it was, you know, and, and since we're in Boston at that time, you know, and over in Blackside, over in the South End, you know, it was something where uh, we spent a lot of time, you know, finding people to be able to make that story work. And, you know, as, as you may know, South Boston has changed a lot. You know, it's much less of a Irish Catholic enclave now with, with um, you know, with gentrification and uh, sort of filling in all that area by the Children's Museum where you have now tons and miles of condos. But, you know, back then it was a very insular community. And I've got to tell you that just even driving around there on those very narrow streets, um, you could you could feel and you could see where the archival footage was and how close those mobs were, you know, to the buses full of young kids. So it was um, it was a pretty amazing section to be able to make, uh, you know, and it's very, very powerful, uh, very, very powerful. Now, when you think about Eyes on the Prize, um, and you earlier alluded to Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. what's the connection and the 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 real through line when we think about these movements? You know, because uh, mm-hmm. Eyes on the Prize talks about civil rights. They have Black Power yeah. movements in there. These Black freedom struggles, and now we have this BLM movement that, in its mm-hmm. first iteration in 2014, Paul was not necessarily embraced by the entire country, you know, sure. including some veteran civil rights activists who weren't kind of quite sure what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and now in 2020, as we mm-hmm. speak, this has become the biggest thing happening uh, in the age of plague. So what's the through line? 
You know, it's interesting. There's actually a, a visual through line, and, and bear me out for a second. You know, the successes of the civil rights movement, you know, in Alabama, especially in the 60s, you know, were based on something that David Garrow writes about in a book called uh, uh, About Selma. Um, and it's about socializing the conflict. You know, in Albany, Georgia, they had been unsuccessful because uh, the chief of police, Pritchard, refused to beat them up, you know, and to treat them badly. And so there was no media moment. But in Selma uh, and in Birmingham, you know, with Bull Connor, you know, and with uh, Sheriff Clark over in Selma, they were able to get people to abuse them on camera. You know, and those pictures and that media went around the world and around the country and it mobilized people because it showed them, you know, what was happening, you know, under the cover of dark in many places in the South. And so it socialized that conflict for the people, you know, especially the, uh, the white uh, American majority outside of the South, that this was unacceptable. And it led to the Civil Rights Bill of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65. The analogous thing is that I think the difference is that you know, with the ubiquitous of, of iPhones and people taking video, all of a sudden people are actually seeing video of what happened. And you can't escape that. You can't escape what happened with George Floyd. You can't ex- escape what happened with Mr. Blake over in Kenosha. It's kind of like, there it is in front of you. Okay, how are you going to deal with it? And I think that's the major step where all of a sudden you socialize the conflict by bringing in a large portion of the population that just wasn't aware or they they can't escape this video they can't you know they can't explain it any other way and so how do you deal with it okay and you can't just sit there on the sideline and say well that's interesting and i think that's what changed in terms of um, you know in terms of public opinion and public awareness especially of what was going on and that uh you know leads to a much different uh larger public uh uh, consciousness vis-a-vis the Black Lives Matter movement. What do you think right now the impact, the continuing impact on the Eyes on the Prize series uh, is, especially in terms of it being taught in K through 12 education, but also its impact on a new generation of documentary filmmakers? Well, I think, you know, first things first, when it was, you know, uh, when it's taught in school, it has an incredible impact. I mean, there was a certain period of time when I can't can't tell you how many people told me they had watched Eyes on the Prize in school. It made me feel very old uh, <laughs> as you've seen it when you were in junior high school. You know, but that's what you hope for as a documentary filmmaker, that, that that material is out there, especially for young people, to remind them what the history actually was, told it a compelling you know, way to be able to have people you know, listen to regular people, not just famous people, but regular people telling you what it was like to organize the Montgomery bus boycott, you know, to tell you what it was like to be a sanitation worker in Memphis, to tell you what it was like to be living, you know, in a small, small building, you know, built on the, the, the mall for Resurrection City. What was it like? You know, and that brings people in. You know, in many ways, the, the legacy of Eyes and the Prize is also in the legacy of just what Henry started, you know, introducing a generation of filmmakers, giving them an opportunity to be able to do other work. And in those filmmakers, you know, introducing more people, you know, Orlando Bagwell, who made, you know, some of the most incredibly moving parts of Eyes on the Prize One, you know, went on to found Roja Productions, which employed many, many young uh, filmmakers of color, 
and also doing his series Africans in America, you know, and Citizen King, his film about Martin Luther King, uh, you know, Sam Pollard, who had been working as an editor and, uh, you know, but not producing films, was given an opportunity and eyes to be able to make films. He had been an editor with, uh, with Spike Lee, but, you know, he's done, you know, incredible amounts of films in the years since, you know, including uh, co-producing Four Little Girls with, with Spike and biographies of Maynard Jackson, Frank Sinatra, did an amazing film called Going Back to T-Town about the riots in Tulsa. You know, Bennett Singer did a film, Brother Outsider. These are all people that worked with us. Uh, the Life of Barrett Rustin, uh, Jackie Shearer, my late co-producer doing the Massachusetts 54th Colored Infantry for the American Experience. Louis Messiah, you know, W.E.D.B. the W.E.B. Du Bois, a biography in four voices, and back to the Scribe Video Center, which is, uh, 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 you know, uh, again, brought in many, many other folks, you know, in Philadelphia into, into filmmaking. Nolan Walker, who's now the vice president of content of ITBS, you know, was a, a, a production assistant. Maya Harris, who made Banished with Marco Williams. You know, just the list goes on and on and on of filmmakers. When when Henry passed away in 1989, 88, no, sorry, 1998, um, at his memorial at the Arlington Church in Boston, just it was an astounding collection of people that had worked with him and other documentary filmmakers. And so that legacy, you know, that inspiration, you know, lives on in other filmmakers. And all of us who made those films have tried to be able to help younger folks under us to be able to tell the same kinds of stories that deal with social justice, deal with stories of diversity and bringing in storytellers that were not always part of mainstream media in the United States, which is what documentary can do to be able to bring those stories to a larger audience so that for me, Eyes on the Prize is just one of the most amazing series ever done. You know, a series that every one of us was proud to be part of you know, and that we carry on that legacy that Henry's vision allowed us to be part of. Yeah. And I know uh, the journalist Callie Crossley was part of that too. And she was always oh, yeah. very, very yeah. Yeah. Uh, admiring of Henry Hampton and just, just the whole experience. Yeah. Um, you know, I want to ask you about your, you've made a film about George Wallace and I couldn't uh, have you this conversation with you and not say what, mm-hmm. because you're an expert on George Wallace, what, what do you think, what are the comparisons between Wallace and the current president? I'm not even going to say the current president's name, but are there any, I know there's been these comparisons, but somebody who's made a film on George Wallace sure. uh, in that time, are there any, and if so, what, what are the ones that are, that are um, actually effective comparisons and in what way are they, are they actually different? You know, when uh, when we pitched this series originally, it was sort of the the mirror image of Eyes on the Prize. Eyes on the Prize had been about the people that made the civil rights movement. The Wallace film was supposed to use Wallace's life as a metaphor for those people that opposed civil rights. You know, what was going on in their minds? You know, how is it possible for somebody with the segregationist, you know, and reactionary views of somebody like George Wallace to get millions of votes in the 1968 election, you know, as a third party candidate and almost put that election into the House of Representatives where he would have held the balance between the Republicans and the Democrats. Um, I think that to a certain extent, the rhetoric is similar, you know, between 
uh, George Wallace and the, uh, the current occupant of the White House. Um, the difference is that, um, you know, Wallace, you know, was actually a professional politician. He was actually somebody with him. He was in the legislature, was a policy wonk, you know, so that, you know, as aberrant as his views were, you know, he also in style, uh, you know, was part of the political, the cultural mainstream, you know, not the, not the uh, mainstream in terms of his political views. You know, Trump apes a lot of this stuff, you know, but he's all over the map. And it's, it's, you know, I think I was quoted uh, in Peter Baker's article about uh, Wallace, Nixon, and, uh, and the president saying that uh, in comparisons to Richard Nixon, uh, you were doing Nixon a, a disservice because Nixon was actually a political pro who knew what he was doing in terms of mm. the political system, you know. The current occupant of the White House is kind of like a, you know, like a wild animal in a china shop, you know, sort of <laughs> like, you know, hitting out whatever he possibly can. And if you listen to his rallies, it's they're non sequitur after non sequitur and just bomb after bomb and hoping that something lands. You know, Wallace was much more, uh, you know, much more focused. Wallace actually enjoyed having people boo and scream at him at rallies. You know, because he was able to deal with that. And, you know, he liked the back and forth and he thought the back and forth made him look good. Um, and it's also very entertaining, you know, in, in its strange, conflictual way for making a film. So uh, and it was also interesting to make a film about somebody who, you know, went further and further and off the charts until he was shot five times in 1972 and eventually comes around to asking for forgiveness. And in his last election, uh, for governor in 1982, he's actually elected governor of Alabama, uh, pretty much because of the solid uh, support of African American voters in Alabama. You know, when when Congressman uh, Lewis passed away, um, I was reminiscing with Dan Carter, the Wallace biographer, and also the the, the man who rediscovered the Scottsboro Boys case uh, that had been forgotten um, and brought to light in, in an amazing history that he wrote, and we were remembering. Um, the day we spent with Congressman Lewis in Atlanta uh, to have him talk about when Wallace had actually called him and asked to meet with him uh, to talk about what he had done in the past. And uh, John had gone back to Troy to visit his family and Wallace came there and, and he expected Wallace to be there with a bunch of people and news media. He just came by himself and he wheels himself in and as much as he, you know, he was capable of, he asked for forgiveness. He said he, he was sorry for what he had done. And he asked uh, Congressman Lewis for, you know, to forgive him. Uh, and they held hands and uh, the congressman did. It's a very moving moment in our film. And it was an amazing moment just to listen to. Can you picture the current occupant of the White House ever asking for forgiveness for anything? <laughs> no, no. Well, my, my final question, um, Paul, is based on what's happening in 2020, mm -hmm. and as somebody who has been a filmmaker, an artist, a scholar of um, mm -hmm. 20, 20th century American history, what do you feel? Are you Do you feel hopeful about American democracy, race relations, civil rights, based on what we're seeing uh, in 2020? Um, where do you think uh, we're going to be? Uh, because obviously what's happening mm -hmm. now, we've seen patterns uh, right. in our in our history. 
um, echoes of this in the past. Right. It's on an even bigger scale now. And like right. you said, this media technology is allowing for a socialization of these social movements. But right. um, where do you think we're going to go from here? Well, I'd like to think positively. Okay. And I say that with with the assumption that this is going to be the ugliest campaign in American history, you know, that there's liable to be more violent confrontations. This is going to be a very bad couple of months. Okay. So, but where do we get to at the end of these two months? Um, Dan and I wrote a piece uh, a month or two ago in which we said that what Wallace started by introducing this kind of racial rhetoric into national politics that perhaps Trump is, is going to be the end. Okay. And the reason we said this was, first of all, that I still believe that Trump's message is somewhat incoherent. Um, but secondly, this is a very different country in 2020 than it was in 1968. You know, the electorate is much more diverse and it is only going to get more diverse. Culturally, we are a different country, you know, and you can, you can appeal to your base, but this base again is, maybe 40% of the population. Uh, and if that's the case, you know, then Joe Biden, as he says, may very well be a transitional figure to a very different kind of politics, you know, and a much more diversified politics. It was the kind of politics that I think many people expected when uh, Barack Obama was elected uh, president in, in 2008, you know, and you know, these first two terms and then there's a reaction, um, you know, an inside straight of the Trump victory in 2016. But this is a different country. I mean, you know, we live in Texas. Texas is now a majority, or a, a plurality minority state, you know, and it's only going to get more so, you know, especially as those younger Mexican-American voters, uh, potential voters register to vote. And so that the country that we have in 2020 is going to be very different in 2030 and more in 2040. So the hopeful view is that this is kind of like maybe it's like a fever. And, you know, mm-hmm. you know the fevers that they don't kill you, you know, burn themselves out, mm-hmm. you know, and that maybe this is like, you know, uh, the messenger in 2020 burns himself out and that this appeal after this time it's just not a useful appeal anymore and that people stop doing it. Now, is this going to affect fringe groups? Is this going to affect, you know, what Richard Hofstetter was talking about, but the hysteria of, of, of extremist groups? Uh, no. Okay. But there are powers in numbers, you know, and there's powers in cultural change that's not going to be locked away. I, I remember, this is somewhat relevant. I remember going to see, um, I don't know if you remember, I think it was Bob Barr was a congressman in Georgia, a far, fairly right wing. Mm-hmm. We were making vote for me back in 1994. And uh, he was he was giving a talk at an evangelical church, you know, and it was, you know, it was fairly extreme stuff. And we went outside of the church after we was done done filming his his uh, his sermon. And there were kids from the church and they were breakdancing in the parking lot. <laughs> And I remember thinking, you know something, you can do whatever you want, but you can't keep culture out. Okay, you can't keep culture out. You can't turn back, you know, culture and society, you know, no matter what you want to do, unless you put people in a bubble. And America is just changing. You know, it's partially what the role of documentary filmmakers are. I think the way we see it, the filmmakers that are interested in social justice 
to be able to tell stories that are compelling to a wide audience. And remember that Henry's, Henry's mantra to us was that he wanted Eyes on the Prize to be able to be viewable to an audience in Peoria, Peoria, Illinois. He said this all the time. He didn't want them to turn the camera off, turn the TV set off. He wanted them to watch these shows. You know, he wanted this to be accessible to a wide public. And that's what I think, you know, the most successful documentary filmmakers do. They present history or they present issues in a way that reach a wide public. You know, and that wide public then is able to, you know, in that process of socialization, see a world that they weren't aware of. It's like mm-hmm. seeing those videos today for Black Lives Matter of what's happened in the streets. And people go, oh, I didn't know that kind of thing happened. I don't really understand what I'm seeing. I need to understand this. You know, and as filmmakers, you're hoping to reach as large an audience as you can to be able to either directly or indirectly begin to change people's views of the world. And if you do that, uh, then you can be successful. And there's no more, there's no greater example of that than Henry Hampton's, you know, amazing 14 part series, Eyes on the Prize. Imagine what it's done to change people's perceptions of not only the civil rights movement, but American history. Wow. Thank you. That's a great way to close. Thank you for visiting with us. We've been talking to Paul Steckler, who's a nationally and internationally recognized documentary filmmaker uh, and scholar who is a professor in the Moody College of Communication, Radio, Television, and Film, RTF, where he holds the Wofford-Dennius Chair in Entertainment Studies. And he's a professor of public affairs uh, with me, one of my colleagues at the LBJ School of Public Affairs. And we were really talking about his many multiple award-winning films, but we talked about Eyes on the Prize, too, Uh, where he was the filmmaker on two of the episodes of this classic documentary series about the civil rights movement. And we also talked about George Wallace setting the woods on fire. Paul, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for uh, not only allowing me to talk about this, but for me to be able to to sit and do a lot of thinking about what that series was about. It was, you know, one of the highlights of my life. And it just, just thinking about the people that I work with and thinking about Henry and Jackie and Steve Fair and all the people that have passed away. It was just an amazing experience. And just, it's such an honor to be part of something like that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.